Good morning, church. Happy Mother's Day. Hey, listen, we are in this series. We're actually today in week two of this series that we are calling Out of the Box. And this series is all about us wrestling with some of the tough questions that we find within Scripture. And it really is our prayer that by by wrestling with these questions here on a Sunday morning, that we help you to wrestle well with the questions that you have. That, that, that you'll realize that the questions are okay and that, that you are openly invited to take your questions about God directly to God. And that in, in this process of wrestling with the questions, there is an invitation to, to know God in a deeper way, an invitation into real relationship with him. But the thing is this, and, and I, I tried to capture this for us last week, that, that because of these questions being so big, it is going to force us to stand in attention. These questions are so big, it's, it's going to force us to stand with, with one foot, knowing this God who wants to reveal himself to us, but the other foot planted firmly within mystery. And there's an invitation to you to know God in and despite the mystery. Because this God who who wants to reveal himself to you as you take him up on that invitation has, has a funny way of breaking out of the boxes, the neat and tidy boxes that we try to squeeze him into. And so last week, the first question that we dealt with was, how do we respond when God doesn't act in the ways that we expect? And we explored that through the lens of the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. And this morning, we're exploring the question, why why does God sometimes go silent in the times that that, that we, we need him the most? And this morning, we'll explore this question through the lens of Esther. But before we go there to make this real for us, I'm wondering, and I'll ask you to put your hand up here, I'm wondering how many of us have had episodes in our lives where we needed God and it just felt like crickets. We needed God and and the thing that we feel like we get in response is just silence. How many of us have experienced that? I'd love to see your hand. All right, look around. So oftentimes we feel like we are the only ones that experience that kind of thing. And what we just demonstrated is that is not true. So I'm curious, what was that experience of God's silence? What was that like for you? What was the situation surrounding that silence? Was it like what we're about to see in Esther's situation where something traumatic happens, there's this big scary situation and God just simply feels far away? Or maybe it's, it's no major roller coaster moments happening in your life per se, but you just simply felt dry and stale in your relationship with God, like, like two-way dialogue with him was not happening. Or maybe it was something else completely. How how did that situation, what did that feel like for you? And how did you understand that? 
How did you navigate this question of where is this one who promised to never leave me or forsake me? How did you navigate that? And so this is where Esther can help us. The the author, Chris Candia, writes this about Esther's story. He says, her story is strange. This book is full of sexual exploitation, personal vendettas, and the threat of anti-Semitic ethnic cleansing. But nowhere in the story does anyone mention God not once. No one refers to the scriptures and no one explicitly prays. God is on mute while murder is plotted, mass violence is legislated for, and lives are ruined. Yet, despite his silence, God's sovereignty rings out loud and clear. And so for us to see that for ourselves this morning, we're going to start in Esther chapter 7 in verses 3 and 4. And here's what we see there. It says, Queen Esther replied, speaking to King Xerxes, if I have found favor with the king and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I, I could remain quiet. For that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. See, here in in Esther chapter 7, this really is the mic drop moment of the entire story of Esther. Everything in this story has been building to this moment where Esther says to the king, Hey king, you've got to do something here. Hey king, you've got to save me and my people. But to fully understand this mic drop moment, we need to back up just a little bit and actually start with what we see happening in Esther chapter 6. So as Esther chapter 6 begins, Esther has just put a plan into into motion. She has got to stop Haman, this guy who is the, the most powerful official under the king, the most powerful official in the Persian Empire who, driven by by hatred, has masterminded a great evil, has gotten the king, King Xerxes, to sign off on his plan to kill all of Esther's people. So Esther goes into the king, risking her life. Xerxes receives her, knowing that she is up to something, that there is something that she wants, and it's important. But rather than come clean, Esther invites the king and Haman to a dinner. But even at the dinner, Esther still doesn't come clean. And so she invites the king and Haman back to a second dinner. And as as Haman is leaving that dinner that evening, he sees Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's cousin who refuses to honor, refuses to bow down to Haman. And Haman sees Mordecai and he's furious. See, his whole plan to annihilate the Jews was driven by his personal vendetta against Mordecai. But now Haman is so angry with Mordecai that that he he decides to, to kill Mordecai straight away. He'll kill the rest of the Jews later, but he wants Mordecai dead ASAP. The story where God is, is, is not once explicitly even mentioned has just gone from bad to worse. Here's what we see in Esther 6, starting in verse 1. 
That night, the king had trouble sleeping, so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door for the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this, the king asked. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Who is that in the outer court, the king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole that he, Haman, had prepared. So in the story of Esther, King Xerxes is not as powerful as he wants you to think that he is. Throughout this story, he's never the one coming up with any major action plans. So the sense here is, wow, this is a major oversight. What can we do to correct this? Because for for Xerxes to not reward Mordecai makes the king look bad, but also the king has, has every reason to keep this, see something, say something, tip line working well. Because should there be someone else with news of of an assassination attempt or desire against the king and they look at Mordecai and they're like, wait a minute, that guy got forgotten. That guy didn't get rewarded and they don't come forward with the information that could end badly for the king. So, so King Xerxes knows that this has got to be corrected, but he, he's not coming up with an action plan. And so he says, yeah, it's late, but what advisors are hanging around? Verse five, so the attendants replied to the king, Haman is out in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. And remember, Haman is there to get permission to, to kill Mordecai. Verse six, so Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the, horses, and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the official shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. What's interesting to me is when, when Haman manipulated Xerxes into signing off on, on this death penalty for Esther's people, he conveniently forgets to mention who these people are. And here in this story, this person that the king wants to honor, he conveniently forgets to mention who this person is. And so, so Haman makes a huge mistake by making a huge assumption. And so Haman gives his own recipe for his own best day ever and assumes that the king is automatically talking about him, but he's wrong. Verse 10, excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing that you have suggested. And so you can, imagine, you can imagine Haman's reaction to this. 
Haman hates Mordecai, has gone to the palace to have Mordecai executed, and now has, 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 have, he's got to honor this guy. Verse 11, so Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse, and led him through the city square, shouting, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home, dejected and completely humiliated. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, since Mordecai, the man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. And while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And so this is everything that that precedes Esther's mic drop moment that we see in in chapter 7 where she dimes out Haman's plot. And see, in chapter 6, everything has just flipped upside down. We started chapter 6 and it was really, really dark. You've got this, this plan of, of Haman that Esther's people are, are, are to be executed. That is now the irrevocable law of the empire. She has not confronted Haman, the second most powerful official in the entire kingdom. She's not identified herself as a Jew, meaning that she's on the wrong side of this death sentence. And Haman is intent on murdering Mordecai right away. It's the thing that brings him to the palace in the first place. And so things here as chapter 6 starts are really, really bad. Yet at the darkest moment in this story, this is how I called it out three years ago when we talked about the story of Esther. Remember, God is not called out in any of this. At the darkest moment in this story, it just so happens. It just so happens that Xerxes can't sleep. It just so happens that of all the distractions that would have been available to Xerxes, booze and women and you name it, whatever he wanted, the thing that that Xerxes asks for is that the royal records be opened. It just so happens that the royal record is open to this edition. It just so happens that he turns to this story about Mordecai. It just so happens that Mordecai is in a role, a place to have, have heard, overheard this assassination plot in the first place. In that role, very possibly because Esther just so happens to be the queen. It just so happens that Mordecai reports the assassination plot. It just so happens that Mordecai has a direct pipeline to get his report to Xerxes via Esther. It just so happens that Xerxes forgets and Mordecai is not rewarded right away. And so five years go by and it just so happens that in all that time, no one brings this oversight to the king's attention. It just so happens that that Xerxes realizes the oversight and he wants to put it right ASAP. It just so happens that Haman has been advised by his wife and friends to kill Mordecai in the morning, and so in seeking permission, he comes to the palace. 
It just so happens that in, in this moment that, that Xerxes is looking for advice, Haman shows up. And as Haman enters, it just so happens that, that, that the royal protocol is that Xerxes gets to speak his mind first. It just so happens that, that Xerxes does not mention Mordecai's name when he says that he wants to honor someone. It just so happens that because it is Mordecai that the king wants to honor, there is no way that Haman can now turn around and ask to kill him. These are, are, are more than 15 or 16 or 17 happy accidents. There's so much more going on here. In this chapter, in the story of Esther, where everything turns and all of the pieces come together, Esther's not even mentioned in chapter six. And yet Mordecai is there, but he's passive. He's just simply receiving an honor. So the question that we have to ask is, so who is at work Get a clue to that if we hop back to verse 13. It says, When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened about how he had to honor Mordecai, his wise advisors and wife said, Since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. See, Haman's wife and his friends, right? These people that are not at all in relationship with this Jewish God know exactly what is happening here. Even these non-Israelites have this awareness of the power of the Jewish God and his care and his protection over his people. And in verse 13, Haman's wife and friends are not saying that there's something inherently powerful in, in Mordecai's ethnicity. What they're saying is that there is something inherently powerful about this God of the Jews. That all that has happened within chapter 6, these are not simple coincidences. They can see that, that, that Mordecai's God is at work even in the silence. And before Haman can even respond to what they're saying, can take any kind of action, can respond in any kind of way, the king's servants show up and escort Haman to Esther's banquet. And he's locked into a series of events from which he cannot escape. And so the question that the book of Esther raises for us is, who is it that is at work in the silence? Who is it that turns this story completely around? Ultimately, in this book where God is nowhere to be seemingly seen, ultimately, the one at work in the story of Esther is God himself. That it is in the silence that God is moving exactly the right people via exactly the right events at exactly the right moment to exactly the right conclusion. That at the most hopeless moment in this story that God moves, God has not checked out in what, what seems like silence, God is very much at work. 
working through this situation for his glory, to preserve his people, to, to shape his people, through which ultimately the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come to us. There are no thundering voices from heaven. There are no fireworks. The sky does not open up. There are no mind-blowing miracles happening here. Yet God clearly is working his purposes. Working those purposes through very ordinary means. Means that are so ordinary that they can feel like, they can appear like silence. The arrogance of King Xerxes. Esther forced into a beauty contest. Mordecai as a good citizen. The royal court forgets to immediately reward Mordecai's tip. Xerxes can't sleep. Even the timing of Haman's entrance into the king looking to kill Mordecai, none of these very ordinary events happen by accident. In your life, God can move in dramatic mind-blowing, miraculous ways, but so very often God moves in and around you through very ordinary means. Means that are so ordinary that if you are not careful, you will miss them entirely or even worse, you interpret the ordinary as God not moving. As God not at work in your situation because it feels like God has gone silent. In some circles, when God goes quiet, the blame is placed on the person. Look, you must have done something to make God mad. Yet other stories from the Bible, the story of Joseph, the story of Job, the story of Paul, the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the cross. Those who are following God with their lives, but but they experience answers to their questions that they, they don't necessarily want. And that can feel like silence. It can feel like we're not being heard. Or they, they do get crickets. They do get silence from God. And so these stories tell us that this line that God is mad at you is far too simplistic of a response and not accurate. Because it's the story of Esther that tells us what this God is like. That God's movement in the book of of Esther shows you that God is active in the lives of his people. That God is active in our stuff, and in the stuff of your life. That even, or maybe I should say especially active in the little, seemingly random, everyday details of of life, that in those details, God is weaving a story. God is weaving your story. God is loving you. God is moving in power, even if you can't see it, and it feels like he has gone quiet. Take it a step further. When God feels silent, there is such a massive opportunity to take a deeper look at your relationship with God. John Coe, who is a professor who teaches at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, has come up with some of the most helpful direction 
and questions that, that I, I've ever found in understanding God's silence. Co says this. In the silence, God is getting your attention inwardly. Your job in the silence is to ask God, what is going on? In the silence, can you notice what has shifted between the present moment and when God did feel like he was speaking? Oftentimes, the, the silence is, is trying to cure you of you and your attempts to make the spiritual life work on your terms. In the silence, don't get frustrated by the feelings that arise. Anger, disappointment, frustration, fear, that, that, that's simply God bringing up your stuff. Don't try to fix it. Just notice and watch what God is bringing up. And as those feelings arrive in the silence, can you thank God because he is showing you something about yourself? And as God shows you something about yourself, can you sense an invitation to enter into a deeper more real relationship with him. And the thing that, that gives us the freedom to ask these questions that can be tough is, is knowing the things that we see coming out of Esther's story. That if you are in relationship with, with Jesus, no, no matter what you face, that God has got you. That God is in control of your situation, even if it doesn't feel that way, even if he feels silent. The story of Esther communicates this truth powerfully, so that my final question for you this morning is this. As you face the moments in your life when God feels silent, what will you choose to believe about God? How will you choose in that silence? How will you choose to respond to him? Because, because Esther shows you that no matter what situation that you are going through, good or bad, no, no matter how long that situation has been dragging out, Esther shows you that God invites you to trust him. That because of his great love, because of his great power, he can absolutely be trusted even when you don't see him that god is there if you are his child that god is is moving in your story moving your story forward to the the right conclusion that he's working the situation for your ultimate good he is working the situation for his ultimate glory that he is for you that he will never leave you that he is with you and that he is with you to the very end so now that we've gotten a glimpse of what god is like even when he's quiet how will you see God moving in the silence of your situation? What will you choose to believe about God?